A warning about this episode. It contains strong language some people might find offensive, and it is not suitable to play around young children. From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Intersectionality. Some hear this term as a buzzword for woke politics. Others hear it as the umbrella justification for why past trauma equals current fragility. And others have no idea what it actually means. In 2015, intersectionality landed in the Oxford Dictionary, despite the fact it was coined more than a quarter of a century earlier by law professor Kimberly Crenshaw. Two years later, in 2017, Merriam-Webster included intersectionality, defining it this way, the complex cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, and classism, combine, overlap, or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups. My guest today explores intersectionality through research, performance, and teaching. Born to a mixed-race South African mother and white Italian father, John Paul Zaccarini grew up in a working-class English neighborhood as his mother paid to send him to private school, where he was surrounded by wealthy classmates. He is an actor, dancer, circus performer, and mime. He is also a professor of performing arts at Stockholm University of the Arts, and he is the director of Future Black Space. Professor Zaccarini describes Future Black Space as a creative space, free from the white gaze, a space of black artistic identity, speaking from a future time of post-racialism. He joins me now. Professor John Paul Zaccarini, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you with us. And I, I wanted to start with one of the opening clips from your show, Mix Race Mixtape, because it's such a, a physical and sort of visceral way that you introduce the idea of intersectionality as it affects you in, in your day-to-day experience. Can you just talk about what we're about to hear? Yeah, I was working in and teaching in a an all-white, incredibly straight, hetero environment, um, very uh, male-dominated um, and quite overall privileged and entitled. And there I was in the midst of that uh, black, brown, queer, and coming from a working class background. And I wanted to, in a way, teach and show people that there is more than one way of moving through the world, more than one way of speaking in the world, and more than one way of expressing oneself uh, artistically. Um, And so rather than create a dry theoretical lecture around the notion of intersectionality, I thought I'd use my personal experience to viscerally illustrate the kind of oppressions that you've just mentioned and the kind of marginalizations that weren't affecting the majority of people in that space. Yeah, and in this clip that we're about to hear, you are physically demonstrating what it's like to show up at an intersection and have all of these forces coming at you. 
yeah, being in the middle of, a, of all the lights going green at the intersection and all the traffic hitting you head on. All right, let's listen. I think my lights have gone green here. Like, I think I'm allowed to go in your direction, if that's okay. Put my foot down on the throttle and go in the direction I'm heading because I have been waiting for this all day. To be in front of you, giving you my work, which is always directed towards you and with love. And this is the direction I'm facing, but as I'm doing this, I can feel a green light happening here. And hear the word faggot. You have to excuse me one second. I'm just gonna deal with this over here. <clears throat> so I'm dealing with faggot over here. Maybe dealing with it. No, I'm being annoyed in fact. Just with a lack of imagination. There are so many rich, beautiful words you can call a queer. Faggot, it seems a bit poor. Anyway. I'm dealing with queer over here, faggot over here, and I think it's done. Oh, and then I'm back with you. This is where I want to be. This is where I'm directed. And then I hear the word peasant. Please just hold on one second. Just to give you some background, my father is uh, from northern Italy, um, from a small village in northern Italy where he worked uh, the land. So yeah, peasant. I'm here working with this over here. I'm not quite sure whether faggot is dead or not yet, whether that's still going to bubble up at some point. But anyway, I think I've, got, I've got things under control. I'm back to where I want to be, but really, am I back 100%? I've got some stuff going on in the background, which is making me not completely present. And I really hope someone else doesn't distract me, because maybe you might leave the room. Oh, it's all quiet. That's good. And then I hear the words, nigger lips. Now, this is what they used to call me at school, which, to give it some context, you have to imagine this face much smaller, but the lips the same size. <laughs> so, when I, as I grew up, my head grew, but my lips didn't. So, anyway, nigger lips. This is an example of being at an intersection. In this case, an intersection of insults. Professor John Paul Zaccarini performing his show, Mixed Race, Mixed Tape. And John Paul... In that example, I mean, part of what's so powerful about it is we can physically see you wanting to start your, your performance. That's your agenda. But you have to deal with these other forces coming at you. And so your full attention can't be there because you have this other stuff going on. How, how present is that kind of a dynamic for you today? Well, <clears throat> today, when I'm in the everyday environment of my university, I come with an intersection of privilege. So I have the privilege that masculinity, not masculinity, but my maleness gives me. I have the privilege of education. I have the privilege which my mother worked very hard for, which is upward social mobility. I, and I have, the, you know, I have a PhD. I'm a professor. I have so much privilege. So I'm kind of, um, I can weigh those two things up and they balance each other out in a certain respect. However, when I walk out into the street on the tube, <clears throat> my brownness is suddenly, I would say, produced. I'm suddenly made to be brown because of a xenophobic populist gaze or an anti-black gaze. Um, 
And suddenly I become very, very aware of one particular oppressive light going green, let's say. Um, if I walked into the streets, both brown and a woman, and let's even go, and trans, more of those avenues of symbolic violence and sometimes physical violence would open up and I would have to negotiate more of what, what is going on. The thing about being at an intersection is you're never quite sure what exactly is being attacked. Is it my brownness? Is it my womanness? Is my womanness being attacked because of my blackness? Would I be okay in this situation if I was a white woman? So what, what do I bring to my defense? Is it my feminism? Is it my anti-racism? Is it my pride in my class? What, what do I have to bring to the situation to, to sort it out? Um, so I'm in a very privileged position, almost like an ethnographer who is in a situation, but also outside of it, because I can analyze something without being so enmeshed in the complication of it. Um, that I can analyze it properly and then sort of give it to people as, as teaching or as art or, um, yes, but in this particular situation in Sweden right now, elections are coming up any day now. And we know that when elections start happening, people start to have the courage to say what's always been on their minds. So outside is a fraught place just right now for brown and black skinned people here. So a, a lot of us think of your current country of residence, Sweden, as a rather progressive place. And, and there are plenty of people listening to this who will say, I have no problem with his ethnicity. I have no problem with his family's class background or the fact that he's gay. Why does he want me to understand all these facets of his identity? Doesn't that just limit him to all these different labels? Yeah, I see it. That's an interesting thing. That sounds like the sort of objection that would come to, from someone who doesn't believe in identity politics. And someone not believing in identity politics is someone who's never been burdened with having an identity. And I would say quite out, this is, this is going into the meat of the matter really quickly. I would almost go to say that um, white people have a certain privilege of being unmarked. Philosophically speaking, it means um, they are the subject of history. They are at the center of the discourse. They are at the center of knowledge and history. So a white artist is perfectly allowed to make, let's say, abstract work, abstract expressionism. A black artist is burdened by having to make black art a woman makes art from a woman's perspective. So they don't, they don't have the privilege of having this abstract position of just being an artist, just being a tennis player. No, it's a black female tennis player with all that comes, with all the, the gaze and the pressure that comes with, with that. So I am not the one choosing in many circumstances to be identified with this list of things. But sometimes I will and use that to my advantage. And I, I know I can, I, it's also something I can play with on what effect if I want to. 
And when we come back from this break, I want to ask you about the uh, perhaps superficial divergence between a post-racial world and figuring out all of these identities. You're listening to Coastline. Professor John Paul Zaccarini of Stockholm University of the Arts is with us today exploring intersectionality. We're also going to find out why he's building a creative space that excludes the white gaze and what that means. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Performing arts professor John Paul Zaccarini of Stockholm University of the Arts is also the director of Future Black Space. He envisions this as a place for creative recovery, discovery, project, and artist development, specifically and exclusively for people of color. Now, before we get into the exclusion of the white gays and white people. Before we went to break, we were talking about all of these identities that people who are not white and not male and, you know, we could go on, have to grapple with in terms of being identified by the external world when they walk out the door. When you identify yourself in all these different ways, how can you still aim? I mean, mixed race, gay. Um, you said peasant, which is no longer true, but it's still in you. What, how can we aim for a post-racial world when we're still focusing on all these different identities? Example, actually, and this is where I discovered I know it's a, it's a roundabout answer to your question. Where I first discovered the notion of intersectionality was in a discussion around the Black Panther movement and um, the the dominance of the mask of the of the masculine, both aesthetically and in terms of leadership, in in that movement. And I was reading a discussion around how women had to choose to be black first and women second. What would have happened to that movement? if women's rights were coextensive with black rights? What, what, would, what would have happened if there was a properly intersectional approach to civil, to civil rights and they weren't two separate battles? What would have happened if Shirley Chisholm had a properly intersectional following and didn't, wasn't divided between the women's movement and the black movement? Um, my way of describing it is, have you ever felt that you had to leave one of you at home just to make everyone else feel comfortable? That you had to leave one of you out in the cold so that you could only, so that people weren't disturbed by your full presence, your full being. Can you give us an right. example of that? Yeah, I walk into a room and I realize in this particular situation with all these men, I have to leave my feminism at the door or I won't get the grant. I won't get the job. I won't move forward. So I leave my feminism freezing in the cold. When I go out to meet her again, is she going to tell me to take a hike or is she going to accept me back? I'm going to have to rehabilitate my feminist beliefs back into my being. 
because for that moment, I just have to shut up. So that's what I mean by, are you really bringing all of you to the party? And revolution will only happen when we bring all of ourself to the party and don't leave any one of our minoritized or marginalized identities at home because they are part of us. They, they form us. And I'm listening, um, agreeing with what I'm hearing, but also listening through my um, perhaps unconscious and embedded white supremacist cultural conditioning and thinking about how every person on the planet, including white males, leaves, wind up leaving some of their less socially acceptable or perhaps marginalized parts of themselves outside in the cold. So how is it different? Why is it different for people of color? Oh, wow. <clears throat> the amount of self-censorship that one has to, I mean, we, I say we, I'm going to say we, I'm literally biting a bullet most of the time in majority white spaces. From the small things, which we can't be bothered with, to the big things, which are structural, but if we speak up, we will be the problem, the angry black woman, the angry black man, uh, the one issue person in the room who has not got a multiplicity of interests. <clears throat> um, we'll be the troublemakers. Um, oh, really? Is it always about race? Right. For example, all, like all of those things. Um, the, 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 the construction of this thing called future black space, which wants to speak from a post-racial future space, is that we do a lot of that censorship when there are even no white people around. It's internalized and there's a censorship that we do to ourselves. So we don't have access to the fullness of our being even when we're in private. So when I speak about white gays, I'm not talking about white people. I'm really not. There could be a brother blacker than me who is, has the white gaze embedded so strongly that in fact he's whiter than me. So how do you exclude the white gaze from a space then? We have to be aware of when it rears its ugly head. <laughs> we have to be, we have to help each other to understand that to go forward, we have to construct first an identity that is not in reaction to whiteness, colonialism and imperialism that created blackness and whiteness in the first place. To create that identity for ourselves as not as a reaction, so that we can move forward. And this, this is the same for white folk. You said earlier, you, you referred to experiencing your produced blackness or produced brownness. Can you, what does that really mean? It means that you walk into a room as John Paul, as a full person, and at a certain point, you are made to be the representative of blackness in the room or queerness in the room. Or someone says something that um, you need to defend because they're, let's say, they're ignorant or they are causing harm and not realizing it. So you suddenly say, I'm sorry, that was really a homophobic thing to say, or a generalization, or an assumption, or a fetish. Please can you refrain from saying that? You are being produced as a queer person suddenly the spotlight is, is on you. On a more visceral level, the little girl who is four years old has everything in front of her 
She looks at, she is the beauty, she's the apple of her parents' eye, everything. And then she confronts suddenly the fact that her image of beauty is not what is being projected on screens, in the newspapers, the superheroes. And I'm, I'm speaking for myself, you know, white James Bond, white Superman, and let's be frank, white Jesus. All those images which I were the ideals of beauty and justness and goodness, all of them white. You suddenly realize I will never be that. You are suddenly produced as black. Produced. From being a whole person, you are fragmented by, you know, externally. It didn't. It didn't come from you. So whatever shame or rage emerges from that, from that, um, doesn't come from inside. It comes from the outside. It's implanted within you, and that's a really good way of keeping you under the heel to internalize all those racist misogynistic or homophobic mechanisms that keep a certain ideology in in place in your show mixed race mixtape you have a moment when you talk about being in a bar writing a poem could you perform yeah. that for us yeah the the prelude to that is that these guys three guys were very interested in what i was writing um it turns out that guy number one is a misogynist, guy number two is a homophobe, and guy number three, he says, I said, so what's your issue? And he says, no, I haven't got an issue, I'm just a black one. So he was like on my side. Anyway, so they want me to write, to read one of the poems, um, and I said, I don't think I, I should. And the black guy says, well, you know, you're a misogynist, you're a homophobe, I think that's all your material, isn't it, mate? I mean, yeah, you're, no, you've read me well. But I gather my courage and I look the homophobe, the white homophobe in the eye. And I say to him, white boy, your booty is so bouncy like a trampoline. I'm gonna go old school, slap on some Vaseline. Papi gonna tattoo with his woody. One night I love you's in your white boy. Get tabooed and breeded with this mixed blood seed. Maybe voodoo tree and your tummy hung with strange fruit. Maybe history's juice on your tongue. Say it's yummy sweating there in your birthday suit. Cause now that you naked, you can't fake it. No escaping voodoo daddy got all the loot now. Cause you stole all my gold and all of my riches. Now you just be one of my straight white man boy bitches. White boy. And then I said, oh, Nice to meet you, lads. I've got a train to catch. Bye. And I said to myself, always have a poem in your pocket, John Paul. Because I think they were so confused by what had just happened, they couldn't react yet. They couldn't sink in. But I'd had my say, and <laughs> I felt good leaving that moment of um, aggression, which often we don't feel good leaving those moments of aggression because we don't know how to react. Are we paranoid? Did he really say that? Was that racist? Was that misogynist? I don't really know. I go home and I itch all night thinking about it. It's the double labor of microaggression, which people that don't experience that, they don't go home and worry if they're paranoid that people are attacking them silently or, you know. So, yeah, it was a, it was a strategy of, of not going home and doing that labor. And the way you performed that, there was a certain accent that you used. What was that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a Jamaican accent that just, it literally came out of me uh, because um, in the working class area that I grew up, it was a combination of kind of Cockneys, East End, West Indian Jamaicans and Nigerians. So that accent came out because of its association with um, 
quite misogynistic and objectifying kind of Jamaican music about women and booty. So I was just flipping, I was flipping that gaze around. I was flipping like the male gaze back onto him, but also it was a queer brown gaze, you know? You know, I'm gonna colonize, terrorize your ass till all them racist lies um, are effed out of your head sort of thing. So it was a, yeah. So you, you've talked about microaggressions a couple of times, and, and most people have, have heard about those, but probably don't have a good understanding of exactly what they are. And you talk about the difference between you're the only person of color or the only queer person in a straight white space. The parts of yourself that you need to leave out, you say you're so often biting a bullet or you're you're just having to let some of those go by you because it's not worth putting the energy into. Can you give us an example of a microaggression that the white people in the room probably have no idea they just perpetrated? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go for one that everyone has probably heard about, which is don't touch my hair, right? Don't touch, it's an Afro. What, so why is that aggressive? Right, first off, I'm not an animal in a zoo. You cannot pet me. Second of all, um, you're invading a very intimate and personal space just because of my difference, just, just because of that. Um, you are highlighting my difference by reaching out to touch me. You're also infantilizing me because, you know, children, unfortunately, people feel they can go and touch you they can go and hug them without permission so there's nothing consensual happening there and you're you're reducing me to a thing that can be petted or touched or experimented with or there's a whole i could go on just for that one for that one thing i give you another one which is more subtle i said to a colleague of mine or in future black space of course everyone at the moment is black in the space I, there's, a, there's a really beautiful male dancer um, in, who's going to come and work with us. And she said to me, oh, but you're all beautiful. And I, I went, wait a minute, don't, what do you mean we're all beautiful? No, some of us aren't all, what do you mean? Just by virtue of the colour of our skin, we are all beautiful. Well, and I'm also the same as you. Who's the you here? You all, you folk, she might as well have said. So she was doing something very positive that she thought was a positive, a compliment. But in the end, what happens is I can't say anything. I finish the meeting and I spend a good two or three hours just churning that over in my head. What should I have said? Why am I spending time now dealing with this? And I, I related to mosquito stings. You don't notice them when they happen. So you go home and suddenly you're, you've got hives, you're itching, you're allergic to too much whiteness. That's what happens with allergies. You know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a defense from the body to say, you've had too much of this. Um, and that's how microaggressions build up. Um, John Paul Zaccarini, professor of performing arts at Stockholm University of the Arts. You have identified yourself as born to a white Italian father and a mixed race South African mother in in some lights, and I'm going to do a really white thing here. I'm sorry. And please, rigorously and aggressively um, tell me um, 
what I'm doing here and how I'm doing it. But when I look at you, I don't see a person of color. I see probably a white guy. If I saw you on the tube, I might think you are a white guy. Why do you identify as black? Uh, I'll go back to what I said before, is that I am produced as brown in this context. Um, So the xenophobic gaze makes me brown because of the incredible uh, visual whiteness of Nordic culture. So I am different. So uh, here, um, if there's someone wanting directions who doesn't speak English and they're from the Middle East, they will say to me, Arab, 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 because I'm the nearest they can come to. to... So I'm produced as brown. I didn't do anything. Um, I'm also, for those of you who are listening, I'm wearing a cap. There's a difference to when I have short, straight hair, chemically straightened, and when I grow out my afro. The second I grow out my afro, I attract the gaze like flies to honey. So it's it's uh, I can I can so I can I know how to perform blackness for effect when I when I want to. But you're completely you're right, and I don't mind that someone looks at me and says, "Well, I don't know what race you are. You look Mediterranean or like a, a white guy." What what that does that, that that does no harm to me at all. So, you have a son, and when you are out in public with him, sometimes you also find yourself having, experiencing produced brownness or blackness? In How does that yeah. happen? How does that happen? Someone can come up to me and say, I'm really sorry, this is probably the last question you want to hear, but you are so brown, he is so white. What is your relationship to the child? Has, has, has a human actually said that to you? A human has actually said that to me. <laughs> um, and uh, at the time, I, I said, I'm the father. I, and I was right. I treated him way too nicely. I said, I know, I understand how difficult that must be to say. And he said, well, yes, because, you know, when you see something off, you just want to do the right thing. Like, what, the, what is he saying? First, when you see the, something off. And secondly, this notion of citizenship, which allows a person to come in and interfere in, in that sense. The worst thing about that particular aggression is what happens to my imagination once the event is over. What were you thinking was the relationship between me and this little boy? You have, and you have, you have violated a space in my soul that is innocent and beautiful and the most sacred space in my life. And you have decided that you can enter and violate that, that space with a projection from your, your perverse anxiety and paranoia the interesting thing about that one incident incident was that he clearly didn't want to come and ask me the question when i look into the foreground there's a gaggle of white swedish ladies clucking to each other about him meeting me and interrogating my son about who i was it's the women who sends him forward and if i talk about anxiety and sexual repression, because I was looking hella fine that day. I was well brown, had a beautiful white shirt, I had my afro. I was looking fine. And white ladies, what are you doing exactly? Is that look, get out of my country or get into my panties, right? Is it, is, is it jungle fever you're experiencing? Are you feeling guilt over jungle fever? Is this how you have to enforce your, your superiority? 
is by sending this poor, quivering, emasculated man to come and ask me a question that you need answering to. The, the perverse dynamics of that are fascinating for me. You're listening to Coastline. Professor John Paul Zaccarini is my guest today. We're exploring intersectionality and why one practical answer to that for people of color might be a space devoid of the white gaze. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. John Paul Zaccarini has worked as a mime, a circus performer, actor, dancer. He's now a professor of performing arts at Stockholm University of the Arts. And he is the director of Future Black Space, a creative space for people of color to see what will emerge, what is unleashed when the white gaze is absent. John Paul Zaccarini, what was the initial reaction when you proposed this idea to the largely white administration at the university? Well, I wasn't privy to the conversations that happened behind closed doors while they they made decisions. But I know that my Swedish, my Afro-Swedish colleagues who were part of the application uh, couldn't believe the fact that they'd given me the money to do the project. They thought I was either blackmailing someone, sleeping with someone, or some other nefarious um, thing. I said I didn't blackmail them, I whitemailed them. I guilt-tripped them into giving me this. So put your money where your white saviour mouth is. Um, so I don't know how long that, that uh, how long I can play that card. Um, but uh, earlier you said that, you know, the US has maybe a, a rather rosy idea of of, of how liberal and multicultural Sweden is in compared in comparison to, from our point of view, the very visibly structurally racist and on the street, violent, deathly atmosphere that pervades um, black life mm-hmm. <laughs> in the States. Um, uh, so what happens here is a kind of, um, I, I don't know how to put it really. It's uh, it's it's both passive aggressive uh, and defensive. Uh, and if you can throw some money at an, an incentive that goes towards diversity or or that deals with racial issues, then hopefully we can shut them up and not really have to deal with the issue. Is is one way of looking at it. Um, I know that I am incredibly anxious. Well, at least I was incredibly anxious whenever I had to stand up in front of the school and show and talk about results from the research project because I have an internalized white aggressor in my mind which is formed from very real moments of white aggression over time it forms it coagulates into an internalized oppressive you just imagine that you're going to be shot to pieces for what you are for what you are saying so um it, 
you know, it looks good for the university, you know, that I have, that they are funding this project. You, you talk about with the white gaze treading on eggshells as a minority person of color and, and in the paper that you wrote to explain the concept of, of future black space, you said there, <laughs> sorry, it's, there being about 98.5% white folks and about 1.5% people of color, with often you being the whole 1.5%. How, how does that feel? You, I mean, you've described it also as being the black bull in the white china shop. What does that mean? I think the black bull in the white china shop, china, I think of porcelain, I think of delicate constructions. I think of white superiority as a very delicate construction, teetering on tenuous, hardly hardly stable pin legs. How has white supremacy existed for such a long time? Because it's such a fantastic notion. Not as in great, like it's a fantasy. It was made up in from the 13th to the 16th century codified in the 18th century. Like what reality is there? What natural is there about this concept of whiteness and superiority? It's actually incredibly fragile and does not deal with logic. It can't, it, you know, you, you, there, is no, there is no racial logic to it. So when I, I talk about a black bull smashing delicate white constructions of supremacy, superiority, assumptions around white, around culture, um, very, I mean, if, we, if I look at the appropriation of black culture for the profit of white industry, that is not even disguised. I mean, that's so thinly veiled. So it doesn't take a black bull to put a hoof through that. It's right there. It's blatant. And we know, we know the history. So it's all there. It's all recorded. Um, I think what I mean is a bull in the china shop is it doesn't belong there, does it? So I think that's what it, what I mean. Um, when I say black bull in a, in a china shop. So it's no longer the, the awkwardness of like treading on eggshells. It's more like your presence, whether you're quiet or silent or polite, is like a black bull in the room. You, you've said that George Floyd's murder actually created an urgency behind making spaces, both performative and research spaces for, for black people only. What is the connection to future black space in Sweden to the murder of George Floyd in the US? I think anti-black violence in the States has been described as something of an atmosphere. No, an atmospherics. The weather, not sunny weather, not rainy weather, just the weather. Sometimes that violence is sunny, sometimes that anti-black violence is rainy, it doesn't matter. It's the weather, it's the atmosphere that black folk live within, under, they breathe it. We feel the effects of that weather in Sweden. So we cry here for what happens in the States because we feel we have a connection, unfortunately through violence and through colonial history and imperial history, but we feel it. So the urgency that it created was not just that weeping, that we had to try and do collectively in COVID somehow, but also our exhaustion at what one calls performative allyship or clicktivism. So when your white friends 
are suddenly putting black fists onto their Facebook feeds and supporting Black Lives Matter, all of us were saying, where were you when we were in that racist situation in that organization? Where were you when we tried to talk about this and you denied the fact that there is structural racism happening in the organization or in the field of filmmaking or blah, 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 blah. Where were you? And we were exhausted. So I snoozed all my white friends. It took some time, but I, I said, like, I don't want to hear anything from you on social media for 30 days. Snooze, 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 because you are exhausting me. Stop asking me for advice. Stop asking me how you are now. That's exhausting. You think you're being an ally, but no, what you're doing is making us really, really tired, as if we weren't tired enough by the actual violence that we experience from actual honest racists. Sorry, that's so shady. Honest racists on the street. What you're displaying here is something so guilty and we have to deal with your guilt. Again, we're doing the work. We're not on the plantation anymore. We can't, we can't coddle you anymore. It's right there in your face. Please go and do something on your own and don't involve us in your anti-racist efforts. And, and so in your, in your predominantly white situation, 98.5% of the people around you at the university being white, um, you're not on board for diversity training. How much of that falls to you? Um, I get asked by other organizations around diversity and anti-racist training, and I thought it was my job. I thought it was my duty to do it, um, and I did do it. The second time I have, I do a two-day workshop around the seven stages of grieving, where I ask white people to grieve their whiteness, since they know they have to give it up. Um, I'm at a different stage of grief, because I looked in the mirror at the age four, being this beautiful everything, hope, and realized that I was ugly because of representation. My nose was flat, my lips were big. I, I do not look like the ideals of beauty that are out there. So I've been through those stages of grief more than once. I've been through those seven stages of grief. So I do this work. On the second day of the second workshop, I looked at the Zoom picture and I realized that my I was feeling faint and in psychoanalysis, one often feels faint or super tired when there are primeval, primal emotions happening in your client, which they cannot even access. So they, they rent, they rent your, your, your psyche to do the work for them because they can't even access things like rage and shame mostly. So I was feeling faint. So I, I was realizing the intensity of the guilt in the room and the shame in the room. With, with smiley faces that they all had, grateful smiley faces. I was feeling faint and I looked at the screen and I realized that I was going white. The blood was draining from my face. It's like, you people are turning me white. You are draining me of my color to support your work in whiteness. What you need is blackness to support that work. I need to stop doing this job. <laughs> So um, one other person said to me that uh, it's a little bit like hygiene. Once a year, you have your diversity thing, you tick your box, and you can get on with the same old, same old. And then once a year, we come and scrub under your armpits to make sure you are clean. And like that really is saying, oh, we are back on the plantation. So for me, when I say to white organizations, you can't hire me, because I, I say to them, you are draining the content of diversity, which you want to 
can uphold, but you're draining us and we are burning out. How does that make sense? You are overmining us. Well, welcome back, colonial times, extraction for your profit, for you to be able to tick your box that you've done university training and then etc. So that's why I don't do it anymore. Which, it, yeah, it's, it's understandable. I mean, hearing that, uh, I think a, a lot of people can, can relate to that. But then you've got the majority still white people who, many of whom consider themselves allies or want to be allies and are interested in learning. And yet they're spinning around in their unconscious, embedded white supremacist cultural conditioning because it, it hasn't been pointed out. They don't know how to teach themselves. And it's the people of color who are at the receiving end, who, are, who experience the microaggressions and the macroaggressions and the oppression and the wounds. It's harder without a holistic understanding of, of conflict to see white pain around this and, and the white mistakes. Yeah, I, yeah I, t- I, I totally agree. And I'm not unaware of uh, white pain and I'm not unaware of some what I call the self-vivisection of whiteness that work people do upon themselves to kind of like rip out whatever it is that is so-called white with, within them. It's not their skin. <laughs> no, it's a it's a conceptual thing. It's a it's a it's a privileged thing. And that hurts. Even for myself to sort of decolonize how I think hurts. Because that's how I grew up too. I grew up believing that these, um, the, 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 I grew up believing in the supremacy of whiteness. And, and that is ingrained in all my education and, and my dealings with the world. So I have, I have great sympathy for that, but there are different types of work that people of color have to do to remove double consciousness, to be whole, and for white people to do their different work. And we're at different stages of grieving. Most white folk are still in shock that there is something that they have to do. Some of us have already gone through bargaining, anger, depression, rage, into the upward turn and reconciliation and hope. So I think, yeah, so let us be there. Just, just, I mean, just imagine being someone in the upward turn, living in close confines with someone in rage or shock. It, it won't work. It just will not work. So we have to be separate and do our work and then come together and be separate again for safety, I think. And you so see- I want to see white folk on their own doing the work, trying to understand and then meeting and then going back and doing more work because we have different work to do. You, you say that in future black space, this, this space devoid of the white gaze, that a facilitator would... Um, work with participants to so the participants can disentangle themselves from whiteness and you say this is at once liberating which is understandable and shameful what is shameful about disentangling from whiteness i think it's our complicity with our own oppression uh our internal uh, yeah our, our in complicity with our own internal um oppression i think that's what's shameful it's shameful that one has considered oneself lower down um, on the rung of existence 
it's shameful that one believed the propaganda. How could one possibly believe that propaganda? Um, so for, yes, so I think that's why. That, that, that's why. I mean, I think because it infiltrates such deep places, it, it infiltrates desire, it infiltrates how we raise our children, it infiltrates everything. Um, and uncovering that, I think, is can be shameful. Um, but a good process toward some form of um, self-contained pride that doesn't involve putting someone else down. And you've addressed uh, bits of this as we've gone along, but if race is an obsolete idea, how do we let go of this fictionalized idea of whiteness? And what what does that post-racial future actually look like? The post-racial future is like a fantasy. It emerged, what was it, with Obama? It emerged, uh, that word, but pff, I mean, really? Um, it, it, that, that is a fantasy, but we need a fantasy to, 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 to work to, towards. Um, I don't think race is obsolete. It keeps reinventing itself in more nefarious forms. People say slavery is obsolete. It keeps re-emerging re- in digital forms, in so many other forms. So um, fantasy may well be our best shot right now. And that is this edition of Coastline. Professor John Paul Zaccarini, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks also to our good friend and occasional food historian, Vic Roberts. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at WHQR Coastline hosted yada yada. Tell us what you think about the episode or send us an email at coastline at whqr.org. You can find it at whqr.org or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Mm-hmm.